The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The title of this message is, What to Say When Suffering is Great. I'll cut to the chase. I won't leave you in suspense. The answer is nothing. Say nothing. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 13. It's where the title of the sermon comes from. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Not one word. It does not mean they did nothing. It just means they said nothing. We will see there's a a kind of silence that speaks volumes. So let's get real. Right from the start, right here. Doesn't it feel counterintuitive to say nothing? Doesn't it feel like it's counter to our intuition to say nothing. It's, it's counter to our intuition because our impulses are counter to Scripture. They're fallen. There's too much of us in it, too much of a need to share what, what we think. And in that moment, we can, in a subtle way, draw attention away from the sufferer and put it upon us, our words, ourselves, when the Bible says be slow to speak, quick to listen, we turn that around too often when we become slow to listen and quick to speak. My prayer is that with this passage of Scripture, We would be so saturated with the Bible that our blood would flow bib lines so that the overflow of our response to suffering right now would look different than the rest of the world that scorns the Word of God. Would look different. Not be an expression of sinful brokenness, but overflow of biblical faithfulness. So let's pray. Right now, the Bible would show us a more excellent way. Father, we run to you. We have nowhere else to go. Here we have no lasting city. Jesus, we come to you. We have nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. Holy Spirit, we cry to you. We have no power to do anything else. Oh God, I pray that when suffering is great, you would be our teacher. We would listen to you now. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So the more excellent way that we see in Job chapter 2, when suffering is great, is we see a certain kind of silence. Three steps. First, we see the evil. Second, we show sympathy. Third, we sit in solidarity. First, we see the evil, verse 11. Second, we show sympathy, verses 11 and 12. Third, we sit in solidarity, verse 13. Look at verse 11. See the evil. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came, each from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, Zophar, the Namathite. Notice the first aspect of speaking, which is really not speaking. It's seeing. Long before speaking, there must be seeing, real seeing. See the evil. Evil has reared its ugly head. And the text doesn't just say it's suffering, it's calamity, it's misfortune, it's evil. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil, do you see the evil? There's so much of it to see today. Don't just see some of it. Don't just name part of it. See all of it. What evil are we talking about here in Job 2? We're talking about the evil from the evil one in Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, we see that this is part of a spiritual battle. Our wrestling, our fighting, our struggling is not against flesh and blood first and foremost, but against principalities, cosmic powers of darkness. Job chapter 1, verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Satan has been doing this on our streets. Make no mistake. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and the bullets of suffering came in quick succession. There's a day 
When his sons and daughters were eating and drinking, messenger comes, Sabaeans came, struck down servants, edge of the sword, property lost, yet when he was speaking, fire of God fell from heaven, burned up sheep and servants. Chaldeans came, struck down servants, sons and daughters, in a house together. Great wind comes, and they're all dead. Job's response. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. He said, naked I've come from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord in all this. Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In the face of all the evil, I'm praying for a grace right now to charge God with no wrong. A kind of silence that in suffering still worships. A second act comes in this cosmic drama. The Lord brings up Job again to Satan. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand, touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. And people around him, closest to him now, even his wife, say, what are you doing? Curse God and die. She becomes like the voice of Satan. And he doesn't say to his wife, you're a fool. He says, you're speaking like a fool. You're speaking like one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job didn't sin with his lips. I'm praying the first thing that we'll do when great suffering comes Worship God, not curse God. Turn to God, not turn away from God. Wherever else you would go, it wouldn't be good. 
So the first step is to see all of the evil. See the evil one behind the evil. And often there's a lot to see. Do not take shortcuts, see it all. And know behind it all there's more to see. Spiritual war. The war won't be won on social media. The war is with rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I'm asking you to see it all. Second, show sympathy. Verse 11. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. Notice this sympathy is not passive, it's active. They made an appointment to come, to come to him, show him sympathy, bring him comfort. And this show of sympathy was not a sham, it's not a show at all. It was a deeply emotional engagement, a weep with those who weep moment. Look at verse 12. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. If I had been all week cutting myself with something sharp, you would not recognize me. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. Showing sympathy first must mean joining the tears, not judging the tears and debating the tears. There will be a time for interpretation. Always. It will come. It comes later in Job. But not now. Yet they will view him later as a sinner, but first, he must be loved as a sufferer. Participation in tears has to come before parsing out the tears and the pain. It means weeping with those who weep rather than first wondering whether they should be weeping so much. This is sympathy. What comes next? Still silence, but another action that speaks volumes. You sit in solidarity. Verse 13. Sit in solidarity. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Notice sympathy becomes an action when you sit in solidarity. It's a parable that is acted out with the whole body, with the whole posture. Sit with the sufferer. I'm with you. Have you ever tasted this type of solidarity? Ever tasted it? I can remember 
a time when I was being berated by someone, sitting up here actually, open mic at Bethlehem, being berated for a long time. And suddenly, someone came up with me. One of the pastors later said it was, it was a great irony that this person was berating you about the elders not listening and you listened to him for a very long time. But one of the elders, Keith Anderson, shout out to Keith Anderson, one of our great pastors, pastor for senior adults, grabbed a chair, sat with me, leaned over, said to me, I'm not gonna say anything, just don't want you to be up here alone. One of the most moving moments in all my time at Bethlehem. And my suffering was not great. Wasn't great at all. But the solidarity sure tasted great. You know, right, that protests are supposed to be like solidarity. You know, right, that the greater the suffering, maybe the longer we should sit, the longer maybe we should listen. And so you're, you're probably asking, okay, so what? How do you take these biblical steps and apply it when Minneapolis is burning? Well, in many ways, Buckle up, because there's so much suffering right now. And one of the hardest things is this pandemic. We can't forget about that. People are losing their lives, 100,000 people in our nation. When I hear people saying, pandemic is no big deal, I just want to say, 100,000 people, do you care about the image of God? Do you care about senior citizens in nursing homes dying without any touch? How can we be snarky about pandemics? People losing their jobs, struggling with worries and fears, and, and we can't, the worst part, we can't sit with each other in solidarity. We need social distancing. Can't gather, it makes everything harder. Man, 2020 is gonna go down in the history books as one very big fat chapter and we're not even halfway through it. These days of wide scale destruction have created even more suffering to an already demoralizing crisis. As people have seen the work of generations go up in smoke in a matter of moments. Communities already ravaged by poverty have some of their most basic necessities gone. Where they go to get groceries, medicine, etc. And obviously in the midst of all of this, we have a moral crisis. There is evil at work causing this suffering 
We could certainly start with the riots. That seems to be where people want to start. Do you think primarily of the riots in terms of angry black men? We are receiving a startling education about all the complexities of riot. I certainly have never heard of a destructive young, largely white group of men called the accelerationists, an extreme subset of white nationalism trying to stoke the fires of tension, act as a catalyst for destruction in order to accelerate the end of society so they can bring about a new one. I'm like, what? I just confess my ignorance to that whole reality. It sounds like a subplot of the League of Shadows, something straight out of Batman Begins. There, there are things happening here that are bigger, broader, more complicated, more complex than a single tweet denouncing it all can understand. So let's say it. It's obvious anarchy is not the answer. Scripture says the anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God. Sinful anger cannot produce the righteousness of God. James 1.20. Romans 12.21. Evil can't overcome evil. Only overcome evil with good. If watching people steal and destroy what does not belong to them somehow seems okay to you, then your moral compass is broken. Let's say it. When a parent has a son for a police officer or a woman has a wife for a police officer and they, or a husband for a police officer and they fear they may not come back alive and you don't ache with them, then your moral compass is broken. We value life. All life made in the image of God matters to God. It's hard to be a cop right now. We pray for the men and women in blue. We know there are good cops. We know that their lives matter. And it is great when in Jesus' strong name they stand against evil too and and an African-American cop and a white cop together hold a billboard against police brutality. More, please. I think we agree on some of those basic points. But as I look at our church, I'm praying for the type of moral discernment, the type of moral compass that can oppose rioting, not protesting, rioting, without forgetting and ignoring the evil that sparked it all. One of my major concerns in this moment is that we're finding it relatively easy to speak against the evil of rioting but not the evil of racism. That is glaring. If that's you, you we will not make it very far as a church in this moment we're in to show love and sympathy and sit in solidarity with the massive suffering and pain right now in the african-american community we'll just get stuck here all over again i have people all the time wonder 
Why are African Americans so angry, so hurt, so tired, so hopeless, so feeling devalued? Have you listened to them? Have you seen the evil against them? Have you made an appointment to show them sympathy, to weep with them, to listen to them, to sit in solidarity with them? They're suffering and saying, we're all out of words. We're so tired. We've tried and tried to explain our experience, share our pain so you can feel our pain. But you say you don't get it. You say you're not convinced. We feel like we have to keep justifying what we think and feel, justify our existence, somehow get you to believe us so you can feel it with us. We don't want to be us and you against each other debating. We want it to be us, body of Christ, us, solidarity together. When one member of the body weeps, the whole body weeps. We try to get you to get it. And now this video. This video, they're saying, we don't need the video. We know it, we've lived it. We tried to tell you this happens to us, that the videos aren't for us, they're for you. It's, it's not as if we just started being treated wrongly. It's that they're videos now. And what they're thinking and feeling and numbly trying to put into words is that this, this video is so obvious. It's like the big E on the moral eye chart. And if you don't see it now, how will you ever see it? It's true. Many people have expressed they feel sad about this incident, and rightly so. But as a majority culture church, it's not enough to say we feel sad. I mean, I'm just naming it. We're a majority culture church. I love everybody up here leading worship, but we were all majority culture, except Pastor Kenny that prayed. It, it stands out, it's a real thing. We don't duck that. We have to see more here than an incident. We have to have the courage to look at what's staring us in the face and stare back at it. 
in the African-American community, this is not an isolated incident to feel sad about. It's another incident. Another incident in a long line of incidents. And with it, they're saying, will we be believed this time? Will people be sad about an isolated incident? Will they lament an isolated incident or will they lament a broken system? Will they feel a broken history? In this crushing grief comes a crucial question. Do you? Do we see it? Do we believe them? Have we listened? Do we see more than just one thing? Do we see a history? Is racism alive and well? I'm afraid we can be like Job's friends here. They started off right, and then they blew it when they started giving their interpretations, saying to Job, you deserve what you're getting. God, God is bringing suffering because of your sin. It's a sophisticated way of saying it's your fault, Job. It's you. Just take responsibility. They were wrong. They were wrong. God arranged it where they needed to make a sacrifice because the Lord's anger burned against them seven bulls and seven rams later offering a sacrifice. Job has to pray for them. God accepts it. That's the way he mends the relationship after wrong is spoken. This right here is usually where it breaks down in our churches. This is where we get stuck in the American church. Majority culture churches on these issues are largely silent about systemic injustice, about a history of racism. Some may have a moral compass that can look at the horrible killing of George Floyd and they can say it's wrong, and they can feel sad and lament. But do you see the difference between the type of lament that's needed? Not a type of lament that only sees one incident and says, that's wrong. It's, it's easy, isn't it? It's easy for many to be able to say in a majority culture church, see that video and say, that's wrong. When African Americans are saying, yes, it's wrong, we're not just saying that's wrong, we're saying that's our story. We're saying that the, the image of a white knee on a black neck is triggering because that's been our history. That's been our story. Everything from rape to redlining to slavery to segregation 
with all of our blood on the ground. Blood and sweat. And our tears have not soaked the ground like they should. We have not sat in solidarity. We have not wept in sympathy. It makes sense, doesn't it? If you're struggling with four days of rioting, imagine how little you would like 400 years of oppression. How do you join a lament like that? In one incident, it's a mighty long lament. Which means we can't truly join the lament until we repent. We can't. You may say in this moment, if you're a majority culture person, What do you want me to do? I, I didn't do the slavery, the segregation. I, I didn't do any of that. Lament, moving to repent, is at least repentance of our silence. Have you stood stood up, speak up against our nation's history of hate. Do you say, I don't want to talk about it. I mean, white pastors everywhere right now on Twitter are saying something similar and it encourages me actually because they're saying, hey Twitterverse, we've noticed something that, that when we talk about other things, you love it, and when we talk about racism, you hate it. Isn't it also an offense to God? Isn't it also an assault against the image of God? Isn't it also clearly wrong? So the only way that we can join this lament, we can't join it until we repent and say, uh, I'm, I'm gonna stop saying, stop talking about it, and I'm going to repent for being silent about it. How else can you join this lament? The good kind of silence that sits in solidarity is what we need, not the silence that never speaks against this evil in the strong name of Jesus. Bethlehem can be that place where solidarity can happen. I believe it with every fiber of my being because we so clearly teach 
the sacred value of human life. This should be in our wheelhouse to be able to say your life matters. You're made in the image of God. Your life matters. You have value. Have you ever thought about joining a protest? I was in three different protests this week. And, and the, the, the message that needs to be there, you may not like other messages that are happening maybe about the police, but you can, you can hold the billboard that says, all life made in the image of God matters to God and matters to me. We speak against evil in the strong name of Jesus. That's part of solidarity. It's got to be part of our discipleship. Centuries of racism don't just, they don't just go away. They often go underground. It's got to be part of our discipleship in our church and in our home, teaching everyone and also, especially maybe, the next generation that racism is not only wrong, but you should stand up to the wrong, speak against the wrong. When African Americans are brutally treated by others, we can stand up and speak up in solidarity with them. When people make racist taunts at Asian Americans and tell them, go home, you're not wanted, we can stand up and speak up in solidarity with them. When Hispanic brothers and sisters are told right now, we don't want you, go home, we can stand up and speak up in solidarity with them. And yes, sometimes, It's true the other way. When radical rhetoric wants to speak of European Americans, especially middle-aged white men, as the spawn of Satan, yes, those who cherish the image of God can stand up and speak up and say, that's wrong, and I will tell you, in the protests that I have been to, I have had African Americans say to me, We're glad you're here. If this had happened to you, we would speak up for you. Have you ever seen what happens at these protests? Have you ever seen what happens in African-American communities when they grieve, when there's a, a service for Ahmaud Arbery? Have you ever seen what happens? What is heartbreaking is that the main message that they say to each other in community is we matter. We have value. It's not right to be treated wrong. They have to tell each other that truth. And I'm just saying, a church that is robustly pro-life should be saying that to them. Yes, you matter. You're made in the image of God. Yes, you have value. Don't let people tell you lies about you.
And we've got to be this kind of people that keep saying that long after the hashtags and the protests. That's why we sit in solidarity to speak that truth. And the ultimate reason we can be as a church that place of solidarity is not only because we cherish the sacred value of human life, but because we cherish the infinite value of Jesus' life given for us. The precious blood of Jesus that has made us a blood-bought family. Every tribe, tongue, language, nation, every age, every ethnicity, everyone bought by the blood of Christ, becoming family so that all of the things that could divide us no longer will because Jesus is stronger. His blood washes away all of our sin. We cherish this truth, not only created equal by God, but washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, made new by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all here in the church. It's all here. It's what we can be. It's what we're called to be. We don't need seven rams and seven bulls. We have the blood of Christ. We can sit in solidarity together, stand in solidarity together, speak up in solidarity together as a forgiven family. And the world will look on and not have a category And we'll have to give them one and say the name is Jesus. So, it brings us to the most heartbreaking question of all. Are the horrible events depicted in the video, the horrible killing of George Floyd by the people that at least should have been first responders. Are these horrifying events part of our lack of solidarity and our cost of silence? in a history of complicity. Are we part of a history of complicity? I was not put on this planet, saved by Christ, filled with the Spirit to punk out now and duck that question. This is our history. This is my history. Not just something that was true of my ancestors. It's true of me. I haven't spoken up like I ought. I haven't stood in solidarity, spoken up in solidarity, been as zealous for the doctrine of the image of God and the glory of Christ 
and the unity of the church, I have not. Confess that to you. I have not. And in the past, when there has been a a killing of an African-American man, we've usually been talking about seconds, split seconds. Here we're talking about minutes that felt like an eternity. If you don't want to speak against this evil, why? He was handcuffed. He was immobilized in those 300 or so seconds at any time the officer could have removed his knee from George Floyd's neck. He pleaded, George Floyd pleaded with the officer for his life, crying out, even crying for his mom. Even people in the crowd were pleading with the officer, don't you see what you're doing? And you can't even see the other officers on him with the one officer on his neck. And the crowd is coming around and saying, this is wrong, stop. And when you watch the video, don't you find yourself joining the crowd and saying, this is wrong, what are you doing? Please get your knee off him, he can't breathe, he's dying for the love of God. Please value this man made in the image of God. Get your knee off him. And how is it that any police officer could feel okay doing that? How is it that the other three police officers could feel okay and watch him do that without intervening? And I'm telling you, it's part of our complicity too. Where were we to speak up about incidents before? Where were we when, when this was happening and we have the teaching of the image of God and the blood of Christ? What did we say? My guess is that many of us, and I say this to my shame, said nothing at all. And I'm just saying, to join this lament then, we must repent. Repent of our lack of solidarity. Repent of our slowness to see the evil, to show sympathy, to sit in solidarity. Repent for our slowness to stand up for one another, speak up for one another in gospel solidarity, slowness to make much of the sacred value of human life, the infinite value of Christ's life and the unifying value of eternal life because we have the same future.
Oh God. Please move among us. Please move in us. We plead with you. We need a mighty rushing wind. Open the windows. Blow away the poisoned air of fear, shame, cynicism, prejudice. By the power of the Holy Spirit, turn confusion into clarity, fear into faith, apathy into sympathy, complacency into courage, inaction to action. Break our hearts, O God. Not only for what is happening in our country and in our cities, but what has happened. Give us grace to come to grips with a history of hate. Give us grace to come to grips with a history of silence, the wrong kind of silence. Give us grace to see in these days that what hate has torn down, the love of Christ can rebuild. Oh God of sovereign grace, change our hearts so the next chapter of the church's story in America will read different, will read like reconciliation. We long for the day when the 11 a.m. Sunday morning service is not the most segregated hour in America anymore because your children, your blood-bought children, stand together, sit together, sing together in greater solidarity. We say it clearly, Father, this is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, you died, and you will be satisfied. You will have the price for which you died and the prize for which you died. A blood-bought, unified, Christ-exalting people of God from every tribe and tongue and language and nation saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to purchase all of us. So we pray, if that is what it is in heaven, oh God, may it be here on earth now. Help us as we come not just to lament, but to repent. Shine, Lord Jesus, into our night. As we confess, we have not been what we should be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.